Hey everybody, on today's episode we're discussing Ocean's Eleven. It's incredible if you haven't seen this movie, but I do recommend you watch it before listening to the episode. It'd be a more entertaining listen. So John, what is Ocean's Eleven about? Mike, I'm sorry. I actually actually just want to address something really quick Mm. before we do the episode on Ocean's Eleven. We've uh we've been getting a lot of hate. Mm. I, I I'm just gonna say it. You know, over all the episodes, over the seasons, we have strong takes, you and I, and, and they're not always right. Uh, but you know, the negativity it, it can drag on you sometimes. The thing is, the haters always win, Mike. Mm. If you podcast long enough, if you don't put forward enough hot takes, the haters take you. Unless when that perfect take comes along, you go all in. And then you take the haters. And that's why on today's podcast, I am announcing that Avatar 2 is the best movie of the last 15 years. I'm coming out strong and the haters can't take me. Did you rehearse that in your head before this? A little bit. Did I rush it? I felt like I rushed it a little bit. No, it was good. It was good. I like that I get to be Brad Pitt in this scenario. This is right. I, I, this is good. And I get to be, uh, Daniel, you know, this is just positives all around. Yeah. Uh, welcome to This Film Could Be Your Life. Welcome once again to This Film Could Be Your Life, a movie podcast where two friends take the movies that they love way too seriously. Uh, my name is Jonathan Devine, joined as always by Mike Overstreet. Hello! And yeah, today we're discussing Ocean's Eleven, the 2001 American heist comedy film, is what Wikipedia says, directed by Steven Soderbergh sure. from a screenplay by Ted Griffin. It's a remake of a 1960 Rat Pack film of the same name. Mike, have you ever seen the original Ocean's Eleven? Sure haven't. Me neither. Okay, so it features an ensemble cast, including uh, George Clooney, Matt Damon, Andy Garcia, Brad Pitt, Julia Roberts, Casey Affleck, Scott Kahn, Elliot Gold, Bernie Mac, and Carl Reiner. Mm. Follows Danny Ocean and Rusty Ryan, who plan a heist of $160 million from the casino owner Tenny ben- excuse me, Terry Benedict, the lover of Ocean's ex-wife, Tess. It was theatrically released in December 7th, 2001. Get this. It it grossed $450 million worldwide. I didn't realize that. This was yeah. a huge movie. That's wild. It was the fifth highest grossing movie of 2001. And, of course, it has two sequels directed by Soderbergh, Ocean's 12 and Ocean's 13, as well as a spinoff, Ocean's 8. Um, we start by talking about our history with the movie and, and kind of general thoughts, I suppose. Uh, here's why I wrote, Mike, a ge- this is a genuine conservative estimate. I believe I have not seen this movie fewer than 500 times mm. front to back. Wow. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> and it's to be like this movie. I definitely saw it early, like probably around when it came out. I don't believe I saw it in the theater, um, but somewhere around there, I, um, I, you know, we, I think we rented it probably and, uh, you know, eventually owned it, and it was just so easy to rewatch this movie. Partially because also as a kid, it doesn't have almost anything illicit, so it was yeah, perfectly sure. fine. That checks Despite out. the yeah. fact that it's about a bunch of criminals, like not, you know, there's nothing really. It's not 
violent. It's not particularly sexual in any way. So it was just easy to always put on and anyone could watch it. But it's it was obviously, I don't know, it was so fun and it was so funny and it felt so effortlessly stylish and cool and it was just a vibe you wanted to be in yeah man um i would even say like you know again speaking to why i've seen it so much it sort of is the the for me the ultimate comfort movie like the number one on the list of comfort movies yeah maybe oceans 12 is in there too but um it's just easy to watch like there's barely any conflict in the movie really but it's made to such a high standard of quality so yeah, for me, this has been a mainstay for for more than half my life at this point. It's it's the movie that I go to when I just want to put something on that I know I will enjoy, you know, and and not feel any level of anxiety or stress. Anxiety isn't allowed in this movie. Yes, it's, a, it's foreign to it. Yeah. Um, what about you? What's your history with the movie? And, and any broad thoughts, I suppose, on on the movie. I have not seen it 500 times, and I guess I should ask you, is it is like the 500th time when you finally understood what happened with the heist, like when it actually The 500th time made sense. Is, is when you start, is when you start noticing, it's funny, you texted me yesterday that you didn't have anything almost for why this movie doesn't work. I have a surprising, like, like four or five things, but you're going to, these are small items. Yeah, it's yeah, fi- the, yeah. The, the 500th time is when you notice like, hey, that cut in the circus from the from the grease man yen when he's jumping through the things was pretty sloppy actually it's the same <laughs> it cuts to the same angle just take what are we doing notes. soderbergh it's all notes on soderbergh's just, choices yeah that's good it's notes uh, from a producer he's throwing them out of the room you know um yeah yeah i mean but honestly like joking aside that's kind of why this movie rules and i haven't seen it as much as you have i don't have the relationship to it that you have i've probably seen this movie tops three times in my life yep. but um you know since that it's made all three times a great experience you know every time i come back to it i, I forget sure. how good it is um i think what's beautiful about like the comment the joking comment i made is that it highlights um the wrong way to watch this movie which is like this kind of reddit way of like let's pick apart the heist like that's just not the point like yeah. the point of this movie is that when you surrender to it, as you said, it is an anxiety, f- like free thrill ride that is just so much fun and so enjoyable. And if you just like kick back and watch it, you're gonna go on an adventure with people that you love, and you're gonna have a great time. And that's like, uh, I mean, what I mean, that's cinema, baby. Come on, right? The yeah. quote, to quote Elliot Gould, that's cinema. Yeah. Um, that's Hollywood. <laughs> it's in Vegas. That's not right at all. But anyway, that's that's kind of my point. Tough. That that's my history with it is. Um, I think I probably saw this in high school. It definitely was not when it came out. Um, but every time I've rewatched this movie, the few times I have, it's just a banger, man. I don't know. Might yeah. be the most purely enjoyable, fun, entertaining movie that we've ever done on this podcast. Um, and th- there's not much else to say about it. I love that. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, before we go into discussing the movie proper, do you want to maybe hit on Steven Soderbergh? Because this is, you know, he's this monolithic director at this point right like aaron brockovich uh traffic out of sight obviously the oceans movie actually as i'm as i'm kind of as i just pulled up his uh wikipedia it's such a strange list of movies which of course is what he's known for that he he you know will will bounce between these weird little indie movies and these you know, mid-budget dramas and then these big-budget, like, you know, action f- adventure movies or all these different things. He's 
he's restless. He's considered very like high, you know, high level genius director. Having said all of that, I'm pretty embarrassing on, on, uh, embarrassingly light on his movies. It looks like I've seen obviously the oceans movies and I actually have seen magic Mike. Yeah. And I think that might be it. Oh no. I saw the informant. That was an okay movie. Yeah. I saw Logan Lucky. That was an okay movie. Uh, so yeah, he's got mm, a lot of great movies. Mm. You didn't like Logan Lucky. No, I'm actually <laughs> upset that you called it. Okay. That movie rules. Uh, that might be my, oh, okay. might be my favorite movie by <laughs> I, him. And uh, like that might be my I just my honestly haven't seen it in, in yeah. since it came out. So I didn't, I didn't have a strong take on it. I agree. Maybe I need to rewatch it. It sounds like. Yeah, one of my favorites. Talk about feel good, fun heist movies. That's like kind there of like go. his return to Ocean's Eleven, but in Redneck Town with a NASCAR race. Mm. It's great. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, it's funny. Craig I, is incredible in that movie. Yes, absolutely. This yeah. is the Logan Luggy podcast where we discuss. Anyway. Welcome. Um, yeah, I mean, Steven Soderbergh. It's a fascinating person because I'm I'm with you. I I have such high esteem of him, but when I go and look at his filmography, I'm like woefully unequipped to talk about his uh yeah, his career right because i think it for me it is like i've seen haywire i've seen magic mike logan lucky i think i caught solaris on cable once um oh yeah i've definitely seen solaris yeah. i really like solaris actually yeah. yeah so there's like that but you know and i've seen the informant but i haven't seen jay i haven't seen um you know half these films in terms of especially like his smaller movies, like some of his most popular, like the limey in terms of like the film circles. Mm-hmm. I haven't seen it. Never, even, never even sat down to thought, thought about watching it. So I feel like I just have a lot of gaps. And in fact, I think the most recent stuff I've seen by him is his TV, you know, full circle um, in the Nick. But despite all that being said, what I do love about him from what I have seen is what we're kind of pointing to here, which is his range. This is a director yeah. that is just willing to, take risks to try things to make very odd abstract or very grounded, funny screwball kind of things. Um, very serious movies like traffic to, um, a heist movie like this. And that's kind of amazing about it. Um, I think I also, what I love about him is that he is very clearly a thoughtful person when it comes to, you know, themes I think we'll talk about later in the podcast, but he, he always seems to invest even his genre stuff with some really strong thematic resonance. Um, and I think this is no different. I mean, what I love about yeah. Ocean's Eleven, and this is, I think, a Chris, yeah, this is a Chris Ryan wrote from The Ringer, was he described this as, and I quote, this is a movie about cool kids made by an outsider. And I just like yeah, absolutely like that love that quote. And it kind of defines who he is as a director, which he is this kind of like on the outside of, um, you know, both Hollywood and cinema and, and also just perspectively on the outside of like power. And because of that, mm. I think he brings a very prophetic lens and a very thoughtful lens to um, movies of all kinds. And I, I generally speaking, love that kind of perspective that he, he instills within almost everything he makes. So that was a long winded way to talk about him. Um, no, absolutely. Yeah. I love what I have seen and what I haven't. I, I really feel like I have been challenged by this recording to go <laughs> catch up on. Also, shout outs to his uh, film blog or his, his web presence in general. Very experimental guy. Does a, puts up lists of things that a lot of people swear by and things like that. I do remember a few years ago, he uploaded a a cut of Raiders of the Lost Ark. Yeah, it's super that cool. Was in, it was in black and white. And all of the audio was taken out and replaced with tracks from... Um, the social network, I believe, the yeah. social network soundtrack. Yeah. And the the goal was to try to drive home just how strong Spielberg's filmmaking was, that he was like, if you only see the movie through the shots, 
and like you take out obviously audio and color and all of that, you still understand what's going on. Yeah. Um, so great, great stuff for that. Love that guy. Uh, anything else before we dive into the movie, anything else on just the overall, uh, sense of the movie? I did want to mention it's, it's kind of like a, this movie almost to me predates like podcasts or Twitch Yeah, in terms sure. of, it's like, again, it's just like, you feel like you're sort of hanging out with your friends. Yeah. Like it's just the, the atmosphere is just like a bunch of people just sort of shooting the breeze. Right. And you're just like, Hey. This is fun. What I'm saying is I formed a parasocial relationship with this movie. Yeah, you are in the heist. You are. <laughs> I am the 11th. Yeah, that's right. We need the 11th. Then you just fast forward the next scene and you assume it's talking about you. It's great. Yeah, I, 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 I've I, started kind of responding in character when I watch the movie. Like as they ask some character something, I just <laughs> pipe up. I'm seeing a therapist, so it's okay. <laughs> Good. Um, Good choice. So, so yeah, you don't need to worry about it. Uh, cool. Cool. Let's go ahead and get to the podcast. We uh, basically divide our conversation on the movie into a few different sections. We're going to start by talking about why this movie works, get into maybe why it doesn't work or what holds it back. That'll be a pretty short section. Uh, <laughs> get into some stray thoughts we've each prepared, and then later on have some dialogue, diving a little bit deeper into some element of the movie. But what works is a long list, Mike. Uh, where would you like to start? Uh, I think for me personally, you have to start with something that you just mentioned, and that's the cast. I mean, I, I don't, mm. I truly don't think you could talk about this movie as a blockbuster without immediately start starting with like the vibe of the cast together, the charisma of the cast, and how that basically makes this movie the most fun hangout movie you're probably ever gonna see. Like, let's be real. Let's just give it the do it deserves. Um, yeah, you call a parasocial relationship. I. I couldn't agree more. I just want to spend time with these people. And that a large part goes to the performances at the center of the film. So how about I kick it back to you? Which, which actor do you want to start with? Who's your favorite as the person you've seen this movie 500 times? Oh, well that's, that was, that was a tougher to write. When you were just going to say, which one do I want to talk about? I was going to say, let's work on the outside and move in. But now if you've pointed it to where's my favorite, I think after you see the movie 500 times, you do start kind you of get a little niche. You, you, <laughs> yeah. you, you start, you start generating a lot of affection for the smaller characters. I do think, uh, Elia gold is like yes. secretly one of the funniest the characters MVP. in the movie. Yes. He has all of these amazing little moments. I mean, the entire scene when he is, you, both of you are nuts when he goes into <laughs> yeah. telling them off for their play to rob a casino is just a one man show. You're out of your goddamn minds. Are you listening to me? You're both of you nuts. I know more about casino security than any man alive. I invented it, and it cannot be beaten. They got cameras, they got watches, they got locks, they got timers, they got vaults. They got enough armed personnel to occupy Paris. Okay, bad example. It's never been... I mean... It's just incredible. Yeah, and and yeah. again, kind of gets back to the style of the entire of the entire movie that that they could just sit there basically silently through this long I know. through through this whole thing. Well, it's so uh, funny. But he has all these little asides that are just so incredible uh throughout the movie. Go ahead though. Yeah, I know it's it's so funny how when it ends and they're just like, "Yeah, you're right. This is a dumb idea. Thank you for talking us out of it." And then they walk 10 paces. He goes, who are you planning to rob or whatever? Yeah. And like, you just like, you love it. Cause it feels so lived in. You feel like that's exactly the kind of hook that you would need to capture this character's attention. And they successfully pull it off. Um, but it's such, yeah, it's an amazing performance. Sorry. Go on. Go on. 
No, absolutely. I think I think Elliot Gould stands out. I think the Mormon twins stand out. Yes, Scott oh. Codd and Casey Affleck. Amazing chemistry. Yeah, just just in terms of chemistry, it's right there. I think Bernie Mac is arguably the funniest character in the movie. Um, you think about him at the dealership. You think, oh about, my god. You, yeah, you think about the way he shakes that guy's. Also, that guy's name is Denim Billy Ten Denim. Love That's that. So Denim good. like the Jeed. Great stuff. Yeah, um, or the scene geez, with uh, wanna... the scene where he's going after Matt Damon and he says, "Might as well call it White Jack." Is like one of my favorite lines of the whole movie. Um, it's incredible. But you're, yeah, the scene with the van salesman is amazing though, and he's just like, "Oh, I was told to reach out to you, and I'm glad I was," or whatever. And he's just being so weird. It's so good. It's incredible. Uh, um, Eddie Jemison is Levingson Dale. Definitely the smallest character, probably, but still super, super funny. Carl Reiner, Saul, I think, also maybe smaller character, but he has some great moments. Uh, we've left the big three at the end of that. You know, yeah. talking about the 11, of course. Um, you know, Matt Pitt, or Matt Pitt, well, Matt Damon, Brad Pitt, George Clooney. It's just, in, in terms of power trios, Mike, does it get better than this? No. Is this just, is this just the top? Yeah, this is, and it's one of those moments where they are just like catching all of these people at the perfect time, which is obviously true of like a Casey Affleck too or a Matt Damon, where you're like, I mean, give this ten years and they're not in this movie, can't afford him, right? Mm. Um, but yeah. you caught Casey Affleck right at the time where he could be in a fake balloon diversion saying, I'm not your pal friend or whatever. Um, <laughs> but yeah, I mean, at the core of it, though, you're right. The there is the gravity that holds it all together, and. And that's these three. And and that's it's also wild because like I don't know which one you want to start with, but like Julia Roberts is in this movie for what, eight, eight, nine minutes tops? Yeah. Right? Like and like she every time she shows up, she's throwing a heater. She's like the the magnet, uh just keeping your eyes to the film. But I mean when I whenever I watch this movie, I mean and I, I imagine this might change the more I watch it. I, it might be one of those kind of like Inglorious Bastards thing where you like appreciate Brad Pitt the more you see the movie. But <laughs> as somebody who's only seen this movie three times, I have to start with George Clooney. I mean, he is mm. he is giving a movie star of all movie star performances as Danny Ocean in this. Might be the most suave, handsome person ever in this movie. He's so yeah. cool, so restrained, so like just perfectly pitched right in terms of like how yeah. he speaks and communicates so much so that when he's selling them on the heist like it's so charismatic that i found myself wanting to agree to be a part of it even though i, I lack all relevant skills right i was right. like yeah i'm like, in yeah i can do this sign yeah, me in, up <laughs> i'll rob a vegas casino that sounds great uh but yeah he's just he's the 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 center of the movie and and i don't think the movie works without him so i don't know if you want to talk about him or brad pitt or what but those three are definitely the core I mean, I think that, uh, you know, the, those three and then those two, Brad Pitt and George Clooney, I think just, first of all, the bromance is on a different yeah, level. It's yeah, incredible. Yeah. The fact that, what you know, what I wrote about Brad Pitt, well, first of all, the, the fact that Brad Pitt looks good in this movie is one of the greatest mysteries of the universe. Because anyone wearing those clothes with that haircut, <laughs> you know, no one doing that has ever looked good in history, but he looks perfect. He looks incredible throughout the whole movie. And by comparison, Clooney also looks perfect, but is so different in styling. Yeah, and I think yeah, it's very yeah. intentional yeah. that he is basically, Clooney is the timelessness, right? He's the kind of echoes the golden age movie star, but it's updated to modern sensibilities, which is what I would say about Clooney. I would say that this performance is stuck in my head as like, 
oh, that's just a movie star. That's yeah. just the, the, the handsome guy knows what he's doing, gets on the screen, comfortable, suave, effortless. Yeah. You feel, you feel, you know, hyper charisma. You just feel super comfortable. You're there. And Brad Pitt's kind of doing the same thing, but again, a little bit like mirrored. Like he's, he's a little bit slubby. He's always my, my single favorite detail about the movie. I didn't put in story thoughts cause everyone knows this, but is that every, I think essentially every single scene of the movie, he's eating something yeah, for yeah, some reason. That's yeah, so good. Um, and so every single time we cut to him, he's got he's got a shrimp cocktail. He's got a hamburger that's giving him heartburn. A, a lollipop. A, <laughs> yeah, right. a lollipop. Yeah, for, yeah. yeah. So it, it's exactly the opposite, like sort of demeanor, but the effect is the same, which yeah. is just ultra charisma. You're I just mean, like, dang, dude, I want to be around these people. I like. I love the. Should we get one more scene where he's just like got his head on the bar, <laughs> just, and yet he's still like charismatic. He's just like he's, so deeply uninterested. <laughs> frustrated yeah. and annoyed it's so funny i mean i think Which i a, yeah sorry go ahead, go ahead. no no yeah I, I was just gonna say he's the perfect i mean this is like the, this part of brad pitt's career is awesome because as a character actor during this stretch and in this movie in particular he's just like the perfect glue guy he is this yeah. condensed weaponized form of what he is amazing at, which like you said, is charisma. It is dry comedy. It is looking absurd, but still being hot. I mean, like, it's just like uh, something Soderbergh did is he just distilled that into its rawest form. And then just, you know, through this bromance with Clooney uh, shot at us at the perfect moments throughout the movie. It's great. Yeah. It's absolutely incredible. 10 out of 10. It's funny that I left Damon to this moment because as i think about it damon's best moments are actually in the sequels both of them sure he's not um, in this all he's that a much. little bit yeah he's a little bit quieter in this movie uh he's 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 almost the straight man if you really think about it like mm-hmm. he's the only one um certainly of the three like core trio but even of the i would say the entire 11 he's the only one who feels like he's actually like anxious about this this crime that they're about to commit he's the only one that seems stressed about it and and you know is is working hard to be good um which i think makes him a important character um but he doesn't have as many standout moments but he is he is great i think he actually i think the best moment he has is the exchange with um brad pitt which this is really brad pitt's moment but i still want to call it out uh when brad pitt is is giving him all of the different pieces of advice and he's saying you know don't touch your tie look at me okay I ask you a question, you have to think of the answer. Where do you look? No good. You look down, they know you're lying. And up, they know you don't know the truth. Don't use seven words when four will do. Don't shift your weight. Look always at your mark, but don't stare. Be specific, but not memorable. Be funny, but don't make him laugh. He's got to like you and then forget you the moment you've left his sight. And for God's sake, whatever you do, don't under any circumstance. Russ. Yeah. Can you take a look at this? Sure. So yeah, Damon's acting in that scene. He's just looking. He just looks so mortified. He looks so freaked out. Those are his moments, which are kind of other people's moments. But he's still great in the movie, and I think it's important we have him for the sequels. Um, also, wanted to note, by the way, that the entire cast worked for less than their usual salaries in order to bring down the budget. Mm. Which again, I feel like at the atmosphere of the movie, like it just feels like everyone wants to be there. You know that it's. Yeah. Like everyone's even giving a little bit in order to to facilitate the existence of the movie, which I think is great. Uh, I do want to shout out um, Terry Benedict or Andy Garcia. 
I think that a way he gets overshadowed because he's the only like unfun part of the movie. Yeah, arguably. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's the only character that you actively don't want to be around. But since that's what the character is supposed to be, I just want to note he does a good job. Like, you know, I think he doesn't he doesn't bring down the movie, but he he is he's perfectly you know what he's perfectly in the zone where you feel zero percent remorse about yeah. Him hurting him. Yeah, right? yeah, yeah, yeah. Because they have to. They're going to steal a lot from him. They're going to embarrass him. They're going to, you know, he's going to lose uh, or, he, you know, his relationship. It's just all of the stuff, bad stuff is going to happen to him. But at the end, you have to feel totally comfortable with that. And he does it. He, he lands it. So good on him. Yeah. No, I mean, I agree. And he's just, he, I mean, he's the definition of overconfidence line ball. Like when he has the line of like, no, the towels you can keep. You're just kind of like, F this guy. Like, yeah, you're you like, go, you go to like this person. Yeah, I, I want you to lose. I just really do. Um, and yeah, he's great. Um, I also, I mean, I, I want to shout out Loki, my favorite character in the movie, which might be Yen, uh, Shabo Quinn. He's mm. just, I just love his like bits, you know, with bits like you want something to read, a magazine, and he reaches up, gives him the bird when the door is open, and it's where the F have you been? <laughs> like, is the first thing he says. I think it might be the first English he speaks in the movie. I think it might um, be, yeah. Pretty great. It's just amazing. A, Again, yeah. across all three movies, it's amazing how much traction they get out of the bit of him saying something in in Mandarin, and then... Everyone but, answering and, in English. It's not translated, <laughs> but everyone else responds to yeah. it. It's amazing, yeah. And, it's, and we only have the response of all the other characters. Which, I, like, I don't even know... I've never bothered checking what he says, but I like even when they're at the Institute of Technology and they're trying to figure out where Linus is, and he makes some comment, and they all just stop talking and look at him for a, a pregnant pause. Yeah. And then we return. And that's the whole, that's the whole bit, but it works somehow. It's fun. Well, and I think I think that's probably a good segue to what I think is is the second most effective part of this movie, which is the script. I mean, this is one of the the best scripts probably you're going to find in Hollywood and, and for big and large reasons. I mean, it's obviously, broadly speaking, the most witty, clever script probably ever, but also like yeah. these small moments. I mean, like exactly that one. There is this recurring bit of him speaking Chinese and everyone like. Uh, immediately understanding what it's doing, which is also really funny when you think about it with like Benedict earlier, where it's like he's learning all these languages to become fluent in, and that's like given a lot of like importance. And then apparently everyone in this high squad just understands Chinese and it doesn't yeah. feel the need to like uh, translate it at all. Just kind of like hilarious. But, but yeah, the script is, I think, the strength of the movie. It, it, it through and through, big and small, uh, makes it as successful as it is. I don't know if you, where you want to start with that, but I have a ton of notes on the writing in this movie. I mean, I think that the, it, it's almost like what we've been saying about the entire movie, which is that there's a balancing act in it. And, you know, in terms of the script, I think that the fact that it can be so funny and so dramatic and, and mm. not dramatic with real stakes, no, just I dramatic you. like lines that you're like, Hey, I, that, that was a great line. I'm going to remember yeah. that, you know? Um, the fact that it can service its characters so well and, and each character has their own voice and style. And of course that's partially the acting, but it's also there in the script. I feel like, I oh, think yeah. there's, yeah. there's a lot of really, it, it just kind of, again, like the entire movie, I think it, it somehow is serving two masters at once, right? It's, it's fun, but it's sophisticated. It's lighthearted, but it's engaging at the same time. Um, I have moments I want to call out throughout the script, but if you want to talk more broadly about it, go, I think go for it. Uh, I mean, yeah, I think generally speaking, I guess where I would start on the broadest is, I mean, it has probably like 
my favorite opening and closing capstone of like any movie. Sure. You know, it starts with Mr. Ocean. What do you think you'll do? Or what do you think you would do if released? And then Cluny smirks and it kicks off the theme song and it leads to the getting yeah. the team together. And then it ends with the founded scene, which is like probably the coolest like reversal of the opening that you can imagine. Cause it's still, it's calm. It's quiet. The team goes their separate ways rather than getting together. But when you think about like the writing and this is one of those things that we just don't think about. Cause we just like imagine it like came out of the director's mind into a visual but that was written down like all of that sequencing was written as like, you know, they're staring at a fountain one by one. They leave as it flashes over. This song is playing in the background and it just captures like the thoughtfulness and the way that this like movie just resonates between those two points. Um, and a lot of that goes down to the writing. I definitely yeah. have some wonderful moments I'd like to shout out. And if you don't mind me starting, I want to start with what it. I think is one of the most I don't want to say serious because I'm with you. This movie's never serious, but one of the more poignant and, and powerful hmm. sequences, and then we'll probably get to the funny ones as we go. But the scene that always sticks with me in this movie is is when Clooney and and Tess sit down for the first time for dinner. Yeah, oh, and it is man. just amazing. You're a thief and a liar. I only lied about being a thief. I don't do that anymore. Steal. Lie. I'm with someone now who doesn't have to make that kind of distinction. No, he's very clear on both. You know what your problem is? I only have one. You've met too many people like you. I'm with Terry now. Does he make you laugh? He doesn't make me cry. I mean, dude, does he make you laugh? He doesn't make me cry. Is there a yeah. better like romance line in a heist movie ever, John? It's and again, amazing. it has to be understood. This is like kind of a B plot of the movie. Like yeah. this is like not theor This is, you know, th this would be window dressing or, 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 you know, for another director, I think. But he then injects this, these moments with so much weight. And you're like, dang. Yeah. I've, I've thought about that line for, Ted years it's 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 unmistakable so good so good what do you got what, what's one of your favorites I think well keeping on the sort of like heavier moments I think like I you know obviously I referenced it uh perfectly at the beginning of the podcast but I do I want to re-shout out um the house speech when, when oh, Clooney is talking yes. to Brad Pitt I need a reason <sighs> I don't see money why do this why not do it because yesterday I walked out of the joint after losing four years of my life and your cold decking teen beat cover boys. Because the house always wins. Play long enough, you never change the stakes, the house takes you. Unless, when that perfect hand comes along, you bet big and then you take the house. Been practicing this speech, haven't you? A little bit, did I rush it? Felt like I rushed it. No, it was good, I liked it. Teen beat thing was harsh. And I think, you know, it's actually, again, kind of emphasizes the, the two different identities of the movie because you have the speech itself, which is just incredible. But what happens? They immediately undercut it with the joke, right? Uh, you've been practicing that speech, haven't you? It's yeah. a great moment. Yeah. But yeah. It, it, it lets us have our cake and eat it too, where we get the, the intense, dramatic, you know, thoughtful, like, oh yeah, that's a really, that's a really epic thing. But we also are just having fun and it's light and it's breezy. And, you know, the characters are, are telling each other, like, I think you, I think you maybe 
were a little bit you were a little bit harsh in that one you know you you rushed it a little bit it's fine though yeah um and so i think being able to do both of those things at once is so great I think the only other dramatic moment I really wanted to call out was, and again, not this one isn't that that big, but you know when Rusty is on the phone with Terry Benedict, and he's walking through the casino, he's getting to sort of the climax of his pitch, basically, um, and he runs right into Tess. He has to stop for a second because he realizes, you know, Tess isn't supposed to be here, but he pauses and then he just looks her straight in the eye and says. He looks her straight in the eye and says, Mr. Benedict, you can lose $160 million publicly or $80 million privately. It's your decision. Hey, Tess. And then he goes he goes <laughs> off the phone. Yeah, so yeah. That. It's great. So even that moment, I think, is so – it's funny, but also it's just – it's dramatic in, like, a real way. Like, it's actual sort of stakes drama of just, like, in that moment having that person come up. It's just a great little, great little moment. And there's in the movie is so many things like that. Uh, do you want to start talking about some of the funnier moments of the movie? Uh, yeah, I do. <laughs> yes, yeah, I do. Go, go for it. What do you got? Oh man, there there is so many good stuff. Uh, I mean, <laughs> oh, I love when Don Cheadle shields his nuts before setting off the power outage yeah. device. Just like one of the funniest like throwaway bits. Um, I love that this movie is willing to do screwball comedy when the detonator runs out of batteries. Oh my gosh. Yeah. <laughs> Just hilarious. And then I, for some reason, cackle when it gets to the title card at the end. It says three to six months later after he says, <laughs> I don't know, three to six months for how long he's going to be in prison. Like, these are so clever. And it's not like laugh out loud funny. It's just like witty. It's just so it's just clever. dang yeah. funny. Um, I have a couple of lines, but I, I don't want to completely dominate this part of the section. So what you got? I mean, unfortunately, I only have lines, so I, I may just throw because again, no, I let's think do it. I got some too. Writing, I got some too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The script writing, I just think, is on another level. And again, I think there's all these. There's a few bigger, like like well-known sort of great lines, but a couple small ones I like. First of all, the entire poker scene yes, is just on a different so level. Good. The first one I want to reference is uh, Shane. You got three pairs. Yeah. You can't have three pairs. You can't have six cards in a five-card oh, game. Josh. Josh. Maybe one with Josh. 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 All. Okay. Reds. <laughs> yeah. Shut up, dog. All right. Yeah. So, so I think that kind of... That kind of moment. And, and, you know, I am a little nervous that, like, do these other soap opera stars know that they're being made fun of? But let's not worry about that. It's an incredible scene. It's incredibly funny. Um, even yeah, like a lot of these said, are very, I'm not sure what four nines does, but the ACE I think is pretty high, <laughs> pretty high. Yeah. <laughs> it's pretty good. <laughs> Great stuff. I think, um, again, a lot of these are rusty Ryan moments. I noticed mm-hmm. when he says, you know, him and Danny exchange, why do they always paint hallways that color? Well, they say taupe is very soothing. And then he kind of begrudgingly nods his head like, <laughs> oh, yeah, I guess he's right. <laughs> yeah. Um, when Matt David is talking to to Rusty Ryan, and he says he's talking about Terry Benedict. Benedict, he says, "This guy is as smart as he is ruthless. The last guy that got cheating in here, not only did he get him sent up for twenty years, but then he he says a couple things. And he says, and he bankrupted his brother in law's tractor dealership. I just I just love that quote. <laughs> it's okay, it's incredible. Yeah, uh, Mike, what do you have? Ah, uh, another just to keep the Danny Ocean, Rusty Ryan, Phil thirteen. Yeah, go for or, it. Sorry. Phil Turntine, Rusty Ride, dead. No shit on the job. Skin cancer. Did you send flowers? Dated his wife for a Dated while. For a while. <laughs> it's so good. 
<laughs> or my favorite one of my favorite like throwaways is it's rusty and lightest and he's hey, like you guys really can't pick him this guy is as smart as he is ruthless the last guy they caught cheating in here he not only sent him up for 10 years but he had the bank seize his house and then he bankrupted his brother his brother-in-law's tractor dealership i yeah, heard he doesn't just take out your knees mm -hmm. the guy goes after your livelihood and the livelihood of anybody you ever met you scared you suicidal only in the morning. Hey, now what? Just, yep. Now comes such the girl. a good line. And then I know it's um, absolutely 100% been commented on by anyone who's seen this movie. But when he's talking to the... Rusty's talking to the bartender. How's the game mm. going? Longest hour of my life. What? I'm running away with your wife. Great. <laughs> great. So guy just smiles. So funny. It's, it's, an, it's incredible. There is one other one I have to mention. The the Malloy brothers in general, the Mormon brothers, are great. Oh, uh, they just have. I, I worry a little bit that you and I have certain like Sound sibling like that? energy. Yeah, just, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I think especially like the one I would have mentioned and, and cut in is the twenty questions game. All right, start. Okay, go ahead. I got one. Are you gonna think of one? Okay. No, I've already thought of one. I'm not going to. All think right, so of you're one. thinking of one right now. No, I'm done thinking about it. I Fine. have it in my head. Are you a man? Yes, 19. Are you alive? Yes, 18. Evil can evil. Shit. I'm not touching it. <laughs> it's so funny. I just think it's great. It's just an absolutely fantastic little exchange that I, I just can't get out of my head. There's just a lot of funny exchanges that you, you can't forget. Yeah. Um, any, any other ones you want to you call out here? Um, I mean, I just want to shout out the script for, generally speaking, probably having the best, like, again, we've already mentioned this, but it's probably the best getting the team together sequence ever written. It's just so oh efficient, gosh, yeah. introduces every character, their quirks, their personality. Um, again, going back to the brothers, the whole monster truck race car thing, <laughs> like remote control car race is really funny. It's just like such a, you get the brother vibe immediately of like how these yeah. two interact. Uh, but yeah, it's just like such a, and the word that kept coming to mind was efficiency. It is such an efficient mm. way to introduce these characters. I think it's probably five minutes total. And you're just like, cool, ready to go. I get all these people. And that's that's a feat. Um, and then, I mean, this is like weird because I think probably, John, in every podcast we've ever done that includes this, I have hated it. But this might be hmm. the best use of narration I've ever seen in a movie. Um, hmm. I think it's effective. I mean, it's usually Clooney talking about it and setting up like what they're going to do next as you kind of watch a scene. He's narrating, you know, the, this part of the heist. This is how we need to plan this, yada, yada, yada. Never feels burdensome, never feels too expositional, to me at least. Just like it. I think it's an effective part of the script, which is strange because I usually hate it. Yeah, totally agree. I, I will call out one other moment. You actually referenced it already in the dramatic moments, but I'm going to kind of segue out of it because I think if you look at the Claire de Lune scene, I mean, again, we already mentioned it. It's a unimaginably incredible scene yeah i think that it, it speaks to a couple things i also want to dive in real quick on really quick i just want to say the cinematography of the movie is amazing mm -hmm. um it's got all of these like and again it, again it speaks to sort of like the the strength of the film that it's it's weirdly highbrow i guess for lack of a better word it's weirdly sophisticated in terms of its its style styling the cinematography the cinematographer actually was soderbergh by the way under a pseudonym, he he credits he credits himself under Peter Andrews, but it's just Soderbergh. 
uh, which is really hard being your own cinematographer. Yeah. Um, off the top of my head, PTA does it sometimes. He did yep. it for Phantom Thread. Um, otherwise, it's actually a very rare thing. But you have to be like, you know, in, in terms of film culture, you have to be like ultra nerd director to be your own yes. cinematographer. And I think that Soderbergh is right there. And, you know, you think about shots like, Danny, um, after he's he's shaved and gotten out of prison, like really the first introduction shot of him is coming up the elevator. And the, the camera is stationary and you just see him rising up into the shot. It's also mirrored, by the way, when later on when we're introduced to Tess, she descends down the staircase. Mm. And again, the, the shot's being held. You have little touches like that that are incredible. You have the, um, the, the hotel demolition scene, which is a really short scene. But the movie like randomly becomes a little silent film because there's just the music. There's no dialogue and we're just watching, you know, but we're seeing all of the characters looking at each other and we're using that to extrapolate the action of what exactly is going on. Um, and then the Claire de Lune scene, of course, to, to return to that again, is just just achingly beautiful. It feels yeah. like a European yeah. like 70s movie. It just Aching. Aching is the just, right word. Yeah. 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 And it's yeah. it's. I think, like, you know, again, like, kind of cinematography, kind of just talking about the atmosphere now in general. The idea of having the introducing the gang sort of scene and the Claire de Lune scene in the same movie without it feeling wildly inconsistent is mm-hmm. it's just bonkers. Like, I yeah. don't know how to do that. I, I just think it, it stuff like that just really highlights how, you know, it's a movie that's made with intentionality and craft and skill and yeah. it and and is so creative but again all of that is pasted on top of a very easy breezy like like subject and i think it's that combination which is so rare that is is what lifts it to a different level um so i, I touched on a lot there between cinematography atmosphere and stuff like that do you have any thoughts on any of that um, no, I mean, I think you covered most of it. I think the only thing I'd shout yeah. out is, um, you know, Vegas is actually like a very complicated thing to shoot. It's so mm. bright. It's so flashing. There's neon. There's a lot of that. And yet this movie really doesn't, it doesn't come across that way in most scenes, even inside the casinos, right? It feels yeah. very ambient. It feels very almost like, you know, I was thinking of the dinner scene, almost like it's over candlelight. It feels so... Um, so such a lit and like a, a warm and and comforting and also like uh, romantic at times way that you just forget you're in a casino and I think that's that's wild I think that's a, a testament to like you're saying the cinematography I also want to say that this is just a note I put in in here for his direction I just wrote rich man's guy Richie question mark um, because he just nice. does a lot of the same stuff with like ambient lighting and, and moving shots and quick cuts. That I think, but he does it so much more effectively and in a way that's far right. less jarring and and still kinetic, but in a way that actually feels, um, yeah, not like violent or hostile or like abrasive. And yeah. Um, yeah, I love it. I absolutely love it. I haven't seen enough of his other movies to know. I think sometimes he can get into that lane. Like he, he's, his talents are multi-applicable. But yeah. here, I think you're right. Like the, the restraint and the, and the cleverness of it is, is always in service of the movie and is just so well implemented in general, I would say. Um, 
I have one other huge what works and, and so huge that in a sense it's it's you know I say this kind of thing all the time it's a little bit of a travesty that I haven't mentioned it yet but the soundtrack of this movie yeah. is uh, it's by a guy named David Holmes who I, I think collaborates with Soderbergh all the time and I, I mean basically no notes it's perfect it's it's an entirely bespoke soundtrack pretty much I mean like you know Claire de Lune and a couple I think there's an Elvis song in there but mostly it's it's this kind of like 50s 60s 70s jazzy vegas rat packy vibe with just a little bit more intentionality thrown in again a little bit less loose than it appears um but it so matches and and enhances and defines like the mood the vibe of the movie yeah and is is just immaculate i think throughout all three movies um it's perfect. When we used to, Mike, we used to be in a poker uh, game every we couple did. weeks. Yeah. And I don't remember if I did this at that game or another game, but I do remember I used to often push for playing these soundtracks for anything like that, any poker game, because I just think it's perfect. It just sets that kind of low key energy mood so effectively. And yeah, again, no notes. I think he knocks out of the park. He knocks out of the park on the sequels as well. Uh, it's incredible. It's, it's it's actually one of the best parts of the movie and a movie that's almost perfect. So, yeah, uh, yeah, love that. Me too. I just wrote the horns, baby. That's all I wrote. So <laughs> you got it covered. Um, the sax, man. I thought, you know, yeah. Mike, does this not fit into your saxophone hatred or where, where does it sit with that? I, I actually don't really like swing music, you know, rap back kind of stuff um, anyway, but it, it works great. Honestly, like I divorce it entirely. Um, from what, whether I like it or not, it fits the movie. It works for the movie yeah. and it fits the tone. You know, I think I mostly hate saxophones in movies when they're played over, say, I don't know, a rape scene, you know? Um, that, uh, yeah, it's yeah. Tough. And, uh, weird, uh, we're talking about Blade Runner, by the way, if you guys haven't seen it, uh, anyway, I'm done. Uh, so, it's great in Blade Runner, by the way. I, I, yeah. cold, I, I, whispered that. I whispered that, I whispered that, um, yeah, so that's all I got for that. I think for me, you know, the only other notes I really had came from the pace of the movie, which is phenomenal, and we've kind of touched yeah. on that. But I think what is that's it, like an hour, hour and a half. I want to say like it, it, it's in and out. I think it's two hours, but but two it doesn't hours, feel yeah. it. Doesn't feel it. Feels perfect. And I mean, and I think the 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 best example of that is the heist itself. The heist itself is so thrilling and it feels like it mm. comes at the perfect time. Just as you're like starting to maybe get tired of the planning junk, it gets to it and it gets rolling. And it was, I also love about this movie is you barely realize you're in the heist by the time it starts. Yeah. You're like, Oh, we're going, it's yeah, yeah. on. Um, and that's pretty sweet. And obviously that fits really well with the twist of the movie too. Um, and then I also just like the themes. I mean, this movie is not a in-your-face thematic movie, but I do think it has, like, stuff to say about money, economics, and class in particular. Hmm. And as always, Soderbergh kind of wraps it in a fast-paced genre film. And I think that's yeah. just a really interesting thing to do um, for a movie that, far and large, is not trying to engage in any serious conversations. So, yeah, I don't know if you want to touch on pace or theme, but those are the two last two things that I really had to go with the movie. Yep. Uh, yeah, I, I mean, I just totally agree. I think the pace especially is, is you know, it's a huge part of what makes the movie rewatchable. If it was ever a drag, you wouldn't feel like, oh, let me just put this on, and then that's what I'm doing this Saturday afternoon, you know? And yeah, I think yeah. that's where it really, really shines. So, 
Uh, totally agree. I guess last thing that maybe it's I, you made me realize we haven't mentioned yet. The heist itself is really fun, and it's yeah. a great twist. So good. When they are spoilers, if you somehow haven't seen the movie, uh, shame on you. Go and watch. Got it. This far, what's wrong with you? Yeah, I know. You're what's depraved. going on these people? <laughs> But uh, when they reveal that they're the SWAT team, I do have some questions, which I guess we'll get into in just a second. But I think like that's just great. It, it's super fun. It, it, it's it's it is a kind of thing where you really want to go back and rewatch the movie because again, the, the rewatchability of it because it's so you know it's such a great little exchange and little moment and everything. So um, yeah, with that. We do have a section for what holds this movie back, why maybe it doesn't work so well. Um, I only have three things, actually, so it's really not that bad. I have what I mentioned before. I'm going to go into more detail because this is a problem. This does hold the movie back. So when they are casing all of the different, uh, you know, getting the gang together, right? We're, We're having this little sequence and they go to the circus to see the Grease Man. And Danny's all skeptical. He's like, uh, who else is on the list? And, you know, R- Rusty is like, this is the guy. And so in order to convince Danny, basically, we cut to in the middle of him saying, oh, this doesn't look that hard. We cut to the guy to the, you know, the the acrobatic, the acrobat. And he does a flip from one pole to another, a flip onto the ground and then another flip forward. Right. Mm-hmm. From the camera shot, he flips onto the ground. It cuts to the same angle, except now it's actually our actor, Yen. And then he does the one more flip. And then he stands up and says, hi. The fact that it cuts to the same angle is so wild. And so, like, obviously we need to substitute out our real actor that I'm just confused by it. I don't know why it's, I I don't know why it's such a big, why it's there. Uh, So obviously it, it ruins the whole movie is what I'm trying yeah, to say. Yeah. I have it, no idea. I literally have no idea what you're talking about. So you can't picture you, this at all. You've, you've, what I know you? the scene, but I didn't notice anything in it like off. So oh I mean, clearly you've just seen this movie too much. John. That's clearly you just aren't a, you're not a cinemaphile, Mike. You've just, you don't yeah, like, you don't like that movies. Might be it. I've always that said might it. Be it. That might be it. Speaking of, of big problems that you can't unsee. Um, <laughs> actually, I guess you can't unhear. Our boy, Don Cheadle. Oh, uh, God. Yeah, this is one of my... Jesus. Great in this movie. But, uh, what, Michael, if it's 12 years, I'll throw it to you. What do you think about this accent? Where, where do you land on this on this uh, Cockney, I guess, question mark? It's British horrible. accent? It's horrible. It's so bad. It's what's so really funny, bad. This might be a rumor. This is like one of those like lore things. But there, it, it, so he's come out and said that it's not good. That he doesn't... He, yeah does not think he did a good job. Well, there is like a rumor and maybe he's confirmed this and I just haven't found the interview, but there's a rumor that he, he tried to drop it for the next two and the producers were like, no, you can't at this point, you're stuck with it. It's and part of the really, character. That yeah. really sucks because um, it's not good. It is, uh, yeah. it's like immediate too. At first you're like, oh, is this a bit? And then he talks that way for the whole movie and you're like, oh no. Oh, this is just um, the movie. Yeah. What I Don't will know say. what happened there. Yeah, well, I will say in its defense, and I think I texted you this off off mic, but I mean, I do laugh at it. Like, it makes me That's laugh. True. So it's not, like, ineffective. I don't think he's trying to do that. So that's a it's, problem. It's maybe the only case of unintentional comedy in the movie. Yeah, but I do laugh most times he talks because I'm just like, I don't even know what you're saying at this point, and this is ridiculous, but... Is there any um, argument that it was intentional, do you think, or is that just... Wishful uh, I think that's wishful thinking, mostly because he's he's pretty publicly, you know, forsaken it. 
is like it's not good yeah yeah yeah, that's true that's true um the only other one i have is you know partially uh, doesn't work partially just you know nitpicking nits stray thoughts just me being a jerk shout outs to invisible ear receivers that perfectly relay audio (laughs) through all floors of a casino and are completely undetectable by people standing like one foot away from you uh shout out yeah it's great work on whatever technology did that i guess technology in general i think the movie walks a good line of nothing that feels too like retro futury like everything feels grounded and believable having said that do you think you can intercept a 911 call uh and and respond to it yourself with just a laptop i I don't know i don't know what other equipment he had i guess but there's some little things that you 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 kind of wonder you didn't even talk about the nuclear device that shuts down all power in a city which is like super not real like there is a yeah there i mean is electromagnetic to, pulses are real yes but. that is real but not to the extent of shutting down a city without like a nuclear bomb that's just not how that works <laughs> it's just not I, how actually that works. you say that makes me think i should have put this in stray thoughts but since i didn't I'm, I'm just gonna put it here um you know among the many electronic devices that are shut down by uh electromagnetic pulses that includes pacemakers, and <laughs> Las Vegas is, is a lot. A lot of old people in Las Vegas, just so I'm, murdered. I'm just, it's a genocide. Yeah, do we do we just not see like the hospitals being overrun with elderly I, people? I like this take that Ocean is the villain. That this is a yeah. alarming story. When murder. Benedict was so upset at the end, he was thinking of all the dead people. That, that was that was the, <laughs> the tears of an innocent thought. god. <laughs> yeah. How could they? How could and Tess still goes to him? It doesn't make sense. It's horrible. Um, do you want to? You know, is is there a better note to to switch to stray thoughts and just start going down the list? Yeah, that's 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 good. Let's do it. I think it's the moment. Yeah. So stray thoughts. We'll just trade back and forth. Um, here, let me get my list up. So this one is kind of. I'm gonna say this is for all heist movies, sort of. Um, there's in near the beginning of the movie in the first act we have the pitch meeting where he explains to them the heist, but not all of it because for us, we, you know, we need the surprise for us. Right. Or for us. Yeah. And at the end of the movie, obviously they all know the heist because they all do it. So my question is, was where is the second pitch meeting between the first one and the second one where he's like, okay guys, here's what we're doing for real. <laughs> Cause the first time he plays a coy for the audience's sake, but the second time, but then when the heist happens, they all know the twist that they're going to be the SWAT team. So I'm just saying, like, obviously, at some point between the two, there's like another pitch meeting where he's basically like, OK, last time I was just jerking you around. Here's what we're actually doing. And I just I just find it fascinating to think about all of these uh, heist movies where that second implied scene must happen, but we don't get to see it. We just have no idea what happens in that scene. Are they are they like why didn't you just tell us this the first time, you know? Like, is is that energy brought to brought to this at all? I don't know. I don't know. I question. just have questions. You're, yeah. just, you're just asking questions, and I like that about you, John. I do. We're just asking questions here. Yeah, we that's always pretty have good. To. That's pretty good. That's pretty good. Um, this, is, this is kind of a shout-out to one of the bits of the movie. But my first mm. one is just, like, I love the idea that Danny Ocean is given a tux in prison as he's being released. As in, he turned himself in wearing a tux. Wearing a tux. It's just, just like, it tickles me. I don't know. It makes you laugh. No, I totally agree with you. It's it's one of those little details you like. Speaking of little details, um, the career master criminals having a, a really lovely little mixer before the pitch meeting for the heist <laughs> yeah. is 
just it's first of all is a funny scene and second of all i just think is it just tickles me it's just a fun scene to, to exist also fun fact you can very faintly hear claire de lune playing in the background of that scene oh um, interesting kind of a cool touch yeah 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 that's cool what do you got um this is just a quote straight from like trivia during the several several takes it took to shoot the scene in which Rusty and Linus are spying on Tess as she is introduced coming down the stairs, Brad Pitt ate from a shrimp cocktail forty pieces of shrimp. <laughs> Just alarming, John. Have you ever eaten forty <laughs> no, pieces of shrimp dude. in one day? Much less one. one I shoot. haven't eaten forty pieces of shrimp in one like month. That's that's insane. <laughs> that's so much shrimp. Um, this was a bit of research that I uncovered. Didn't know this. Andy Garcia's line to Brad Pitt: "If he should be big, excuse me, if he should be picked up buying a ten, a hundred thousand dollars sports car in Newport Beach, I'm going to be supremely disappointed because I want our people to find you, and when they do, I trust me, we won't turn you over to the police." Blah blah blah. Is actually a reference to a real life event. Mm. Uh, Steve Wynn's daughter, Kevin Wynn, was kidnapped. Uh, the kidnappers were caught trying to spend some of the ransom money in Newport Beach when they attempted to buy an expensive car in cash. I assume $100,000 sports car in cash in Newport Beach. Uh, didn't know that. Just a little little piece of trivia. Interesting. Yeah, I don't know. So don't, don't know. do that, Mike, when you when after you uh, rob the casinos. Uh, mm, I don't know, man. I might I might do okay, that. Okay, that's fine. I feel like this you is You tried tough. your hardest. Maybe Willpower maybe is tough. don't maybe don't tell me what to do. Okay. <laughs> okay. So. okay. Sorry, sorry. That's not me. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Um <laughs> What would you like to hear George Clooney and Brad Pitt pitch you on, John? Uh, honestly, anything. I think just, just I, I, you know, they could be pitching me on. Jeez, uh, I can't. That's a tough question to ask, Mike. I can't think of anything off the top of my head. Okay, well, this is disappointing. I don't know what to say. <laughs> I'm sorry, just leave it there. Hold on a second. Uh, You know, I think they could be pitching me on a career change. And if they're just going back and forth on that, like it could be like it could be, you know, here's why you should be an airline pilot. Here's why you should, you know, go into the Navy, go into the Army. I think (laughs) uh, anything like that, I'm surprisingly amenable to whatever they're giving. You know, I'm just like, oh, maybe they're making good points. Who's to say? Hey, okay. That'd be that. Uh, sure, that's weirdly hawkish, but okay. You really left me out to dry on that one. I, I disagree <laughs> with that straight. I think All you right. just you just lobbed it up, and I'm just supposed to perform off the top of my head. How yeah. dare you? I okay. can say this is this is show business, John. <laughs> brutal. That's brutal. Uh, for my next one, Mike, I there was a lot of casting sort of what ifs in the movie. Like there was a lot of cast decisions that might have gone one way that they were mm. talking to one person then changed the last minute. There was a lot of different casts in the movie. I want to lightning round this though. I okay. want to actually just like rapid fire you three different possibilities. And I just need from you, is that a better movie? Is that a worse movie? Or is it just unknowable? Is it too, too esoteric to be able to decide? Okay. okay? Yeah, yeah. 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 Gotcha. Let's start with the Wilson brothers, Owen Wilson, Luke Wilson as the Mormon twins go. Mm. Uh, you know, I actually I like that, but okay. no, I don't think I think it's worse. You think worse, sure. yeah. But I I'm not offended by it. Yeah, yeah, not as yeah. fun, but yeah. still funny. A very but not different, as fun. very different tone. Like it's definitely yeah. not going to be like bickering as much as it's going to be kind of like uh, I don't know, like kind of like I mean, I'm just trying to think of like a Wes Anderson. 
I was gonna say it'll be like a Wes Anderson movie, movie yeah. is what I'm imagining. That's yeah. so weird. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Mark Wahlberg as Linus. <laughs> <laughs> Worse. Apparently that was in the. Apparently you that know, was in the thing. I actually do I this worse, I, but I also kind of think because you think about like Boogie Nights or something, you're like, he does have other places to, to go as an actor. I think there's a chance it might not have been that bad, but I, worse ultimately, especially when yeah. you think of the sequels. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Did you, by the way, do you know what he, t- I knew this one. Do you know what he turned down this movie to do? Um, you, uh, Planet of the Apes, I think. Yeah. Right? It's Planet Tough. of the Apes. Is that not so the is worst that goal? All, that's an all-time, right? <laughs> oh, all-time bad bad beat. That sucks. <laughs> that's bad. Shout out to the, uh, it's the... That's the Tim Burton Planet of the Apes, too. Good times on that. Um, last... I have one more. I think this is the most interesting one, actually. Mm-hmm. Bruce Willis as Danny Ocean. And I think Oof. the gut instinct is like, well, no, because, because George Clooney is so great in this movie. But Mike, the more I thought about it, I'm never going to say better because George Clooney is so good. But like, I don't know. Not that bad, actually. I kind of feel like that'd be a really good movie. The more I think about it, yeah. It's. I mean, it's definitely. It's again. It's very different. But like, you're right. The gut instinct to say this is bad. But then you think about like the way John McClane self talks throughout Die Hard, yeah. and you're like, you know, it's it's definitely more like nervy. It's more everyman-y. It's it's definitely less like him floating suavely through the yeah. entire movie. But it's still probably really funny and really interesting. It's just a different like that. That above all the ones I've heard of makes it the most different as a movie. Right. Uh, just, just fundamentally like, changes the tone. Movie. Yeah. Yeah. Totally. But it's not totally. bad. Not bad. Um, I yeah. also did hear about Alan Arkin stepping in as the old guy, which I heard. I mean, that would be pretty great. But also like, oh, uh, yeah, I don't think that changes. I, anything. I really like Alan kind of Arkin. Like, yeah. uh, but, you know, yeah, yeah. Was he oh, gonna think... be, was he stepping in for Elliot Gold or for? No, uh, no. Carl. Yeah. That's yeah, Carl okay. Reiner. And they're basically the same person, so it doesn't change the movie at all. But <laughs> that's what um, I was going to say is I think I, yeah. I may have confused them in the past. Yeah. On yeah. other movies. So uh, tough on me. But yeah, totally. I'm totally there for all of that. Uh, that's it. That's my lightning round. Thanks for playing the game with me. Yeah, what do you I feel like I won. Um, so George Clooney apparently is is with us on the original. So he's like obviously committed to the franchise, but in production notes, Clooney claimed that the 1960s version, it's classic reputation is only built on its star power. Everyone will Hmm. say, you know, Oh, that's one of my favorite films. And I'll always say, have you ever seen it? The truth is most people never saw the original Ocean's Eleven. (laughs) Surprisingly brutal take. I I mean, I do have to say like, He's right. I, I have, yeah, that that is basically what I have heard about the movie is that it's like you kind of don't need to see it. It's kind of not that great, and it's like, yeah, cool. yeah. Oh, that's easy. Yeah, um, not a big Rat Pack person in general. I don't know. Like, I n- never got it. I guess we're, we're probably just straight up too young. I guess. Is, yeah. Um, the scene of everyone standing around the Claire de Lune scene, the Bellagio Fountain, one of essentially mm. my favorite scene in the movie. I would yeah, say, yeah, sure, was somewhat improvised. Soderbergh asked for Brad Pitt to leave first and Carl Reiner saw to leave last, which by the way, I think is actually kind of a cool detail. Like, I think that does make sense. There is something thematically rich in that, that the leader leaves first and then the oldest guy is the only one who stays for the whole time. Yeah. Uh, So he he established that, but then the rest of the actors were told to line up and depart in whatever order felt natural. Hmm. Yeah. That's interesting. That was cool. Again, little little filmmaking touches throughout the whole movie, I think, are yeah. really, really solid. Uh, what do you got? Um, 
interesting note, the Bellagio let the crew tap into their security system to get real surveillance footage of the casino and to basically go behind the scenes and, and shoot where they wanted, which I will say highlights that this is all bullcrap because like if the Bellagio gave them that much like insight into how things work, then that's not how things work as seen in the film. Yeah, so, it's tough. Um, but it, does, but it is it, it is it hampers super rare. my plans uh, to become a uh, you know a, a career criminal after yeah. seeing this movie. Certainly tried, but, but you know. But it don't, it, it is like out. a lot of people don't realize. I think how like sophisticated the security is at Las Vegas, which makes sense when you think about it. Like at these casinos, so it is actually incredibly rare that they're given that level of access to shoot something yeah. like that. It's cool. It's cool. Yeah. Um. So, Mike, this is definitely one of those things that, like, five hundred the 500th time seeing the movie, you finally put this together. And also tied to the, like, figuring out what actually goes on in the heist. Uh, I love how the first time through, I don't think you realize that uh, Benedict is talking to Rusty in a SWAT uniform in the vault <laughs> when, he's, yeah. when he's down there. Like, yeah. you know that he, you know later on that the, the SWAT team is the Ocean team. But, like, it's just very clear in the rewatch that is brad pitt talking that is his voice super there's little details like that that i super appreciate yeah that's great um let's see my next one oh i like this one this is another bit of trivia oceans 11 is surely the only example of pitt having something in common with the buck tooth horn dog austin powers that is the unflattering wig that rusty sports in a bid to pass as a doctor is the very same one that Mike, Mike Myers wore during rehearsals for his comic creations. First big screen outing international man of mystery Pitt reportedly compared the hairpiece, which he compliments with a pair of spectacles and also wouldn't look out of place on a groovy secret agent to a <laughs> beaver when first presented with it by the makeup team. Just, just immaculate. Unbelievable. Immaculate Unbelievable. Great stuff. Also, my favorite disguise in the movie, I yeah, have to say. phenomenal. <laughs> someone asked for a doctor. Still, and... still not not hot, you know? He still yeah. makes it no, work. No, so he's, he's still bringing it. He's, he's, I mean, he's still Brad Pitt. What are you going to do? Yeah. Um, Mike, we got to do it. You know, I, I think oh. it, it's come up. Oh. It's come up a couple times recently. And I'm just, I'm curious because it is such a lower stakes movie. And I think it, it's, we have to give the guy credit and try to get him as much chance as possible. So mm. I just have to ask you. Uh, worse hang Terry Benedict or Llewellyn Davis. Oh, what, what do you got? Because, you know, I mean, let's be honest. He's, he's, he's lost out to Baron Harkonnen. He's lost yeah. out to some like sure. big time evil guys, but Terry Benedict is like borderline, not even evil. Like he doesn't do anything illegal, right? Like he's just, yeah, well, I mean, sure. he does, but we don't well, see him do it. He threatens to murder people, but uh, other than that, no worries I mean. about that. Uh, I mean, you know, it's, it's a lower six. So I think, I think Llewellyn has a real chance here. Uh, so, so, so what do you got, Mike? Um, he doesn't, John. That's insane. That's oh, tough. I mean, dude, tough for dude. him. Yeah, you know no, what, but... Terry? You know what, Terry's not gonna do. He's not What's gonna ask. What? He's not gonna ask for for money. He's not gonna hit me up for money. He's not gonna bug me for money. He's gonna let me. He's gonna leave me alone to do my thing as long as I don't try to steal from him. And the entire right. time, my man, Lewin, he's gonna be. He's gonna be trying to steal from you. And at the yeah. end of the day, like, dude, I don't want to hang out with either of them. But at least I know. As long as I keep my cool, I'm going to leave my hang with Benedict without someone reaching in my pocket or impregnating my wife and making her get abortion. So yeah, yeah, yeah. those two things I think, alone, I think he's, it's, it's actually pretty easy. I mean, you know, 
you're just saying facts. Like it's yeah. we we can't do any we can't argue with it because it's just like yeah. I mean, when you're right, you're right. So yeah. uh, sorry, Llewellyn. Maybe next time we'll we'll we'll, we'll find. No, probably not. But you know, there's always a chance. What do you got? Uh, uh, sorry, Tyler. Um, let's see. What else do I got? Yeah, I have. This is my last one. So this is yeah. just a. This is just a truly. It's a mystery. It's one of the universe's great mysteries. I would argue. Why does Tess take Danny back exactly? Yeah, <laughs> big question. Big time questions here. We're really getting into it now. Uh, I think. I don't know. I, there isn't a good reason. It's a. It's that. That is where I think the elevated status of the movie, like, truly runs into conflict with the entertainment popcorn status of the movie, and it just fully subsumes into the popcorn movie. Basically, what I'm saying is because it makes the movie more fun, yeah. and I think that was probably the answer that he, uh, that that Soderbergh lived with. But it doesn't really make sense in the story, does it? Like you, no. you're kind of like, no, he hasn't done anything really to, to like, convey that he's a better person or that you know what, whatever, he, however he wronged her last time, he won't do that again. It seems like no, it seems like kind of the same guy. So I don't know why you're super psyched to be back with him, but uh, but yeah, like like he would think she would just leave Terry. That's like okay, well I now see Terry's a, a dick. Yeah, but, uh, exactly. That doesn't like, mean she has to run back to to Danny. Yeah, it's weird makes literally no sense no sense to me and what is it she does she's an art curator is that right yeah there's a lot if you start trying to unpack tess as a character i think there's a lot that falls apart Uh, okay Uh, because also like how does she meet terry uh how how why is she like like dating terry i did yeah Yeah, is las Las vegas a known art scene yeah yeah actually it's a good point too I, I mean, there's, I don't know, maybe. That's maybe. the one where we could just be wrong. I, feel I like don't we, want to, I don't, I've, I've flown into Las Vegas Have you been it's, to? I've flown, was, it seems awful, Judd. It just seems like my nightmare. <laughs> I, uh, I went to a work convention there. It was like, it was when I worked for a travel company and there was like a travel agent convention there. So we set up a booth. So I was there for three days. Um, actually kind of fun walking around because there's a lot to just kind of look at. Uh, but that's basically all I did. Didn't really. I walked around, ate at a nice place. I think that was it. Okay. I'm not much of a gambler. Yeah, <laughs> it was sounds, a fun time though. Sounds sounds yeah. like it ruled. <laughs> yeah, I was definitely not the target audience. I don't believe for Las Vegas. Um, semi-related to my final question: Would you ever go to a boxing match? I just feel like I, I need no. to set this up a little bit. Whenever no. they yeah, so so whenever they have boxing matches in movies like this, it seems like such a big prestigious thing that everyone in the movie like clearly is like, Oh yeah, you know, obviously you're gonna go to that or you wanna go to that and there's and it's such a highbrow thing. And I always see that and think to myself, like, man, I just could not be I don't think you could like pay me money to go to a boxing yeah, match. It no. just sounds kinda dull. And then the parts that aren't dull doesn't sound fun. So I'm just like, why would I be there? I don't know. I, I broadly speaking have like moral unease over the fact that I watch football because sure. of like it's what it does to the, the human body and, the, yeah. and that's where you even get into race and money. So yeah, boxing is just like you're just like this is this probably is shouldn't exist anymore. This feels like we've evolved past the, not to be like a super modernist, but it feels like progress to have swallowed this one up. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah. I you know the the. the on a sense, it's like let people do what they want. But you're right. It's like, do we are we super confident in you know our assertion of the health risks of this thing? I don't know. Yeah, I, I feel weird about it. I'm with yep. you. With you. Uh, on the other hand, 
would you pull off a heist during a boxing match? Yes, absolutely. Yeah. I, I was actually thinking about that this week where I was like the two best heists I can ever think of in movies are this one and then the town with, you know, Fenway. I haven't seen and, the town, Mike. Dude, the town rules. <laughs> But they pull is that, off a, is heist. That a hole in my education. Yeah, they pull off a heist during Fenway uh, during a baseball game, and both of them are so good. Um, or I guess I guess that one might be after a baseball game. Good times. But yeah. Uh, great. Anything else? No other stray thoughts. We did it. Um, we did it. Stick around after a break. We're gonna get into a dialogue, trying to dive in a little bit deeper to some element of the movie. Hey everybody, for this part of the podcast, we try to dialogue a little bit deeper about some element of the movie. This is a tough movie because it, while it does have kind of some deeper themes and some a lot of stuff going on under the hood, it still is, yeah. as we keep saying, a very light movie. Um, so I had the idea, I wanted to actually, I'm, I'm going to lift this quote wholesale and then try to explain how I think it connects. Because in a sense, we want to have a, a sort of more meta conversation about the movie. Because sure. we've been talking about the way that this is a an extremely um, stylish movie is an extremely aesthetically pleasing movie. And I think, you know, when, when I think about this movie, I actually started thinking about this quote from uh, queer eye. So anyone who's seen queer eye, Mike, you're a fan of queer eye. Oh, huge fan. Love it. Yeah. Great show. It. Right. Yeah, I actually, I will say I, I dropped off probably in the last couple of years. I think the pandemic is when it, it really hit for me. Um, there's, what? there's like a whole side conversation. There's a whole like subcategory of pandemic media for me. Yeah. I don't know if this is just me, but a lot of stuff that I watch there, and now I almost associate it with that and like don't watch it for that sure, reason. Sure. You know? Um, so Queer Eyes is one of those shows. I think I watched like like 15 episodes in the pandemic and haven't touched it since. But great show. And there was this quote, uh, Tan in in Queer Eye says, um, style is not fashion. Fashion is not trendy after a season. I couldn't give a shit about fashion. Style is dressing the way that you feel confident and what is appropriate for you your age, your body type. So that idea of like flash, excuse me, of fashion as being sort of fleeting and empty and about what other people are doing and style being about you and your taste and how you feel comfortable. And the idea that, you know, style is something that has a certain timelessness to it, right? Mm. It gets the idea of like, if you are comfortable in your style, if you're sort of, sort of embodying your style well, it, it works across multiple contexts, right? And fashion, again, as being something that's much more limited, it's much more, it comes and goes, it's here and it's gone. When I think about this movie, it, it, it's so interesting because on the surface of it, it is sort of, you know, it's, it's made in the early 2000s. Uh, it's set in the early 2000s. It has a bunch of actors and a bunch of characters that feel at home in the early 2000s. And yet, no part of this movie feels dated in any way, right? Yeah, sure. It feels like at any point in the last 20 years, frankly, it feels like at any point in the last like 40 years, you could put this movie on, or you could have put this movie on, and it would just be eminently watchable. And it doesn't seem like that's changing. And so I guess why I want to probe, Mike, is this idea that the movie works by not being fashion-oriented, but being style-oriented. And I'm not talking about dress, obviously. I'm talking about aesthetic and and you know whether that's the cinematography or the dialogue or the characterization there's some element to which this movie is 
kind of aggressively its own thing. Yeah. And yet is at home at any moment that you would watch it. Um, so I don't know. There's a couple stray kind of threads to pull on there. Do you have any thoughts on that on how this movie approaches being stylish as opposed to being fashionable? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, this is this is one of those notes that I just had already written before you approached with this question of just yeah. And I think talking talking about Soderbergh and just being like, he's got so much style, and I use that word. And obviously, when you sent me that quote, I was just like, yep, okay, we're let's roll, um, because it's true. I mean, he he just invests this movie with with this this vibe. We've talked about this already. This sense of of completeness and comfort and like it all feeds into each other and works together to create something that's a sum greater or something greater than the sum of its parts. Um, this snappy, quick, fun, confident, and maybe that's the word I, I really want to latch onto like confident movie and what it is. And I think, you know, as a person, I think like all of us at some level, like what we really want the most in this world is a sense of like comfort in our own skin. Right. Mm, that we yeah. accept who we are and we embody who we are and we live out from who we are in like this 100% way. And obviously we're never going to fully do that to 100%, but a way that has no self-deprivation, no shame, no, you know, any of these things that lead us to deny ourselves or to like become alien in terms of us trying to like act like something that we are not, but instead to be a person who holistically accepts what they are and then lives that way freely and openly, you know? And I, I think that's just like, every person's deepest desire probably yeah um and there's also something uh, as someone who you know just has been around a lot of people who i would consider wise or not a lot but who has come into contact with some people i truly consider wise like that's always what makes me draws me to such people too is usually such people are they they embody and they radiate that sense of comfort in their own skin and it makes you mm. desperately want to be around them and to like learn about how they got to where they are and, and to learn from them and, and, and simply to say it's magnetic. Um, and I think this movie is just like a, a cinematic version of that, that goal. It just, yeah. you know, he is such as a, as a shelf assured director, he knows what he wants it to be. And as we've already talked about, everything serves that purpose from the, the horns, the soundtrack, you know, the performances, the cuts, the cinematography, it all just radiates this, like this, this creative mind who is totally at ease with what he wanted to make and then sought to do it as purely as possible. Yeah. I, I, I think that's a great point that the, there's a, there's a mirror between the movie being comfortable in its own skin and like a person who's comfortable yeah. in their own skin. Right. And that, and that they, the effect is the same that you're, you're kind of like, I want to be around this person. I just feel there, there's something so comfortable about it, about the, the atmosphere that the movie creates. Mm -hmm. And I, I think it, it's, it's also telling the way that the movie avoids things that are too, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Too gimmicky. Two mm. of the time, two kitchens. There's nothing kitschy about it. But again, simultaneously, there's a balancing act at the heart of this. It avoids gimmicky, kitschy things, but it's also willing to be a little bit daring, a little bit adventurous. You yeah. know, he's doing the 70s screen wipes and the and the crazy little little one-off comments by people. And, you know, it, it's not an out-of-control movie, but it has a certain element of, like, playfulness to it. Yeah. And I think that finding that balancing point between the two extremes, on the one hand, 
again, being playful and, and being creative. But on the other hand, you know, I guess restraint would be the word, right? Like it, there's a certain element of restraint. There's a certain element of not being too indulgent because if you do, then suddenly it does become like, okay, it's trying too hard. It's too of its time. It's too, you know, something could be in there that's too dated or too weird or too this or that. And now it loses that entire timelessness thing. Yeah. So I think that the balancing, the balance is so important, right? Absolutely. And I think, yeah, I mean, there's something so admirable about it not trying to be something that it isn't, you know, and I, I think there's so mm-hmm. many examples of this where a movie just like, and we would almost, you know, I guarantee you in our what did it work section, we would go straight to whatever that was. But a moment where a film is like a genre film and then like it bumbles its way into trying to making a point or not making a point that it mm-hmm. should or shouldn't have made. And it, you just like could tell it was on the director's mind, but he didn't have the self assurance to like not add it to the movie because it doesn't serve what it's trying to do. Right. And then no. suddenly 30 years later, you're like, well, that's a weird take or, huh, they really <laughs> didn't explore that like well enough considering how weighty that topic <laughs> is. Or, you know, in, in this movie's abil- or, uh, pure ability to just avoid that pitfall is kind of stunning. I mean, it's really hard to do. Um, and I think it, it speaks to what you were just laying out. I think there's also just something, yeah, there's just something timeless about, how do I put this? Even when it does veer into theme, it doesn't do so in a a way that has so much specificity that it ages. You know, it explores Mm. it tangentially, broadly. Um, The themes that it does explore are big, not small. It's not in a time or place, but it's a concept of, of greed, of... Um, yeah. of class, of these things that will never age because they'll probably only, always exist in this capitalist hellhole. Of, of relationships in yeah, a way relationships, that, is, that is, sure. Yeah, absolutely. Totally understandable at any person. Yeah, go ahead. And, and that's just wise because like like you, you're just pointing out, there's a there's a sense to it of like, I don't need a background on Las Vegas to get what this movie's about. I don't need to know what it was like in America in the 1960s or um, a time machine to go back into a cultural milieu um, to understand the point of the movie. Um, I pick it up just by watching it, which never means it, which means that its themes never inhibit me from enjoying it or entering into it. And that's, that's yeah. a feat. Yeah. Hey, everybody. Thank you so much for listening to this episode. Uh, We do have a final question Mike and I have each prepared for each other. Before that, we want to let you know on the next episode, we're going to be discussing the prestige. The uh, this does make it, Mike. We, we do have to confess, this is now like I think the third or fourth Nolan it's a, movie. It's, done, it's right? literally him and what's his face, uh, Avatar boy, <laughs> James Cameron. Cameron, yeah, th- yeah. This is we, we you know, we can go ahead, let's go ahead and do this now, Mike. Uh, we're rebranding the podcast. This is the uh, the Cameron and uh, Nolan Corner. Thank you guys for listening. That's are all you, we do now. Are James you Cameron, a white male Nolan. in the middle class? Then this podcast is for you. <laughs> it's tough. It's tough, but it's real. We can't. We can't. We can't do deny you, our nature. Do you get on Reddit a lot with bad takes? <laughs> anyway, sorry. <laughs> I mean, that doesn't apply to me. I get onto Reddit all the time with amazing takes. So okay. fair, here we go. Fair. Um, Prestige 2006. Go watch it. It's incredible. In my opinion. Final question. Mike, if we imagine each of the 11 as different heist movie roles, which one do you think you would fill in a heist? 
This yeah. is exactly what you had for me, yeah, right? Yeah, like, yeah, like, yeah, 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 yeah. I think yeah, it was yeah. the only, you know, even it's, as I wrote yeah. it, I was like, this is the only question to pull out of here. But that's Absolutely. fine. That means we've both had a chance to think about it a little bit. Well, um, my answer's pretty can, easy, John. Yeah, um, go for it. Yeah, I, I am known in this podcast for having absolutely spotless, perfect accent work. So, you know, I'm pretty sure I've done Cheadle. So. Wow. Uh, Buy me! Just... <laughs> no notes. No notes. I just, I, no notes because I, I want us to do a podcast one day where you're an accent the whole time. Yeah. Not because I think it will be good. Exactly. I opposite. think we missed the boat on. I, that should have been what we did for Banshees. I, I should have just kept that accent <laughs> the entire time. It's a oh, shame. No. It's a shame. Just offend the Irish people everywhere. Not taken. It's tough. Tough. Yeah, you, you look back. It's one of those deeper. It's the deep regrets in life. Fork I think, in the road. Hold on to. Another turning point. Fork in the road. Um, <laughs> you know, I, I think so. First of all, obviously, everyone wants to be Rusty Ryan. Everyone wants to be Brad Pitt. No, I have no that's illusions. Not, that's right? not we're, for we're, us. That's, yeah, it's no. not. It's not. It's not for us, Mike. I, I will say I have a lot of fear that that you and I bring a lot of Mormon twin energy mm-hmm. uh, in okay. into the fold, like the way that they can get into an argument. I think is not, you know, when I think back it's to when we used to, we used to hang out every Monday, I think like, you know, every now and then that conversation probably steered in that, in that direction. It's tough. It's tough. Having said that, as we have learned from this podcast, um, you know, if, if there's one trait I have, it's that I never make technical mistakes. Mm. And I think with that in mind, <laughs> I, I would probably be the Livingston Dale. Yeah. I, I would be the tech guy because I'm just, I'm just, you know, technology is just, in my bag, Mike. I've just never messed up. I'm just always on top of things, and uh, I just think it would it would suit me really well as a role. Do you want to clarify that bit? No, no. You just want to okay. No, okay. no. I just want people to to at home to think like that must be right. Why would they lie? So uh, now that you all know our true nature, uh, I think we're good, Mike. Anything else on on Ocean's Eleven? Did you make sure you recorded this time? Can we? <laughs> Uh, I don't Check know that. what you're talking about. I've always okay. recorded yeah, yeah, every yeah, time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, let's see. Is there any anything else? No, I do. I really want to play poker now. Anyways, that's all. Whatever. I it do really matter. want to play poker. It's, it's funny because there yeah. isn't. Oh, there is the poker game at the beginning. Otherwise, that's the only real yeah. poker game in the movie. But yeah, makes me want to play poker. Makes me want to uh, rob a casino. Mm. Thank you all for listening. Uh, this has been this film could be your life. As always, I'm Jonathan Devine, joined by Mike Overstreet. Goodbye. See you on the next episode. (laughs)